the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Welcome to the Science Inside, where we bring you the latest news and developing stories and events happening around the world of science and technology. Good evening. I am your host, Bridget Libere. Well, under the current global government policies, we are heading towards three or four degrees of warming above the peak the pre-industrial levels and this is said to cause a significant amount of melting of ice from the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets to enter the Earth's oceans. And Professor Nick College from Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Center says this melting of water uh, will cause a significant uh, disruption to ocean currents and change levels of warming around the world. As you would have guessed Tonight, we are not only going to be tackling the issue of climate change, but we are also going to look at disaster management and planning um, around this and the efforts that the world should be putting in place well, well in advance in the probability of a natural disaster striking. According to the Global Change Institute, which is here at uh, the Wits University uh, Dr. Ruzwanzo Matsika, uh, she says that developing economies contribute the least to climate change research. But despite these communities being the most vulnerable to gl- climate change, and effects such as floods and droughts are becoming an even more eminent feature in the South African climate, among other things. But as these developing economies join the global shift towards green policies, the GCI says the con- conservation. Rather, the conversation must move from high-level spaces into um, the smaller spaces or the smaller pockets of our communities where we get uh, the average household to interact and to contribute to uh, these conversations. And they want to give them a platform where they can voice their concerns and possibly contribute to turning around this crisis of climate change. And tonight on Unscience, we talk about why eating a grasshopper rather than a succulent piece of steak or a piece of sizzling bacon could save the earth from further greenhouse emissions and will save you more than a couple of rands. Then in our final story, we're going to be looking uh, further onto the issue of how climate change affects various industries and professions and we will later on learn about the various efforts and the ideas that are, be- that are being discussed and that are going to be implemented in addressing the heightened risks of natural disasters in the advent of climate change. All this and more a little bit later on in the show. But right now we are going into the news with Mulewoheng Mukoka. Good evening Mulewoheng. Evening, Bridget. How are you? I'm very well, and welcome to the Science Inside. It's my first time. I'm a bit excited to be here. Yes, that's why I'm welcoming you. <laughs> so, what do you have for the for for the Science Inside in tonight's news headlines? Well, firstly, robots and prosthetic devices may soon have a sense of touch and scientists have discovered how mammals' brains have evolved to distinguish different smells. This is Science Headline. Good evening, I am Mulebrehe Mugoga. 
Robots, as they are famous, famously rather referred to as bots in their age of advancement in artificial intelligence, may soon have a sense of touch equivalent to or better than the human skin with asynchronous coded electronic skins. This is an artificial nervous system developed by a team of researchers at the National University of Singapore. The new electronic skin system achieved high ultra responsive responsive rest rather and strength to damage and can be paired with any kind of sensor skin layers to function effectively as an electronic skin. The innovation by assistant professor Benjamin T and his team from the Department of Mineral Science and Engineering at NSU Faculty of Engineering was first reported in prestigious scientific journal Science Robotics earlier this month. Associate professor T who has been working on the electronic skin technologies for over a decade says as humans we need to use our sense of touch to accomplish almost every daily task such as picking up a cup or making coffee or making a hand or even shaking hands without it would never even lose our sense of balance when walking similarly in the case of robots they too need to have a sense of touch in order to interact better with humans however bots today still cannot feel object as they come across well and this development will particularly help in the case of people who are in need of prosthetic devices and in our final story with the world filled with millions of distinct smells science has established that mammals brains evolved to tell those odors apart now two neuroscientists from salk institute and university of california in san diego have developed that at least six types of mammals from mice to cats distinguish odors in what might seem like the same way this is by using circuitry and which can be defined as a neurological network that communicates in the brains of mammals to allow them to differentiate smells and this can be seen through the evolution over time. The study conducted has shared insights into organizational principles behind brain circuitry olfaction rather which is the sense of smell in mammals that may be applied to other parts of the brain and species says Charles Stevens distinguished professor emeritus in South Neurobiology Laboratory and co-author of the research published in last week's edition or rather issue of current biology journal. The study revealed that the size of each of these three components of the neural network for a Establishing a sense of smells scale about the same for each species, starting with receptors in the nose that transmit signals to a cluster of neurons in the front of the brain called the olfactory bulb, which in turn relays the signals to a higher functioning region for odor identification called the piriform cortex. As assistant project scientists of with UCT's or rather University of California. San Diego's Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind Shvim Srinisan said the above three scales with each other with the relationship to the number of neurons in each stage is the same across species. The current study builds on research by the same duo published in 2018 which describe how mouse brains process and distinguish odors using what is known as distributed circuits.
Let's recap your top stories this hour. Robots and prosthetics may soon have a sense of touch and scientists have discovered how mammals have evolved to distinguish different cells. This week's news was, sci- was sourced rather from the Science Daily. Oh, thank you so much for the news update, Mulebo Heng. Uh, I would like you to just, you know, uh, speak about this just for a while before you dash out of here. But what are your thoughts around, you know, robots and them getting a sense of of touch? Because I hear that um, scientists in the field of artificial intelligence, the thing that they've been battling the most with is that robots, because robots are unable to feel whether something is cold or whether something is hot, you can't really tell a robot to bring you, let's say, they can bring you a cup of coffee, but yeah. you can't really expect what kind of cup of coffee they'll be bringing. They might just bring a cold cup of coffee because they don't have that sense of 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 touching and smelling. You know the regular feelings that human beings have. But I think this would be really groundbreaking in the sense where you know robots would be adapted to be able to come up with this kind of ability. I think it is a, a really great development, but there is some. Con- Concerns, rather, are we developing robots to be like fully functioning humans? And what does this actually mean for people? So it is a great development. <laughs> but once robots develop a sense of touch, what next? Yeah, so, yeah. I, yeah. I remember in past shows where we've spoken about artificial artificial intelligence. Is that you know, with science scientists coming in, we've also questioned the yeah. ethics um, around this, and if we are not really pushing the envelope. A it's too far because I yeah. mean, if we, I mean, would robots eventually take over and like just wipe out? That's mankind? the main concern. Yeah. Would they actually take over? Yeah. Are we not setting ourselves up for, I don't know, possible a danger disaster. in the future? <laughs> a crisis. Wake up one day and you are killed by a robot. <laughs> <laughs> or a robot has taken over your job. Exactly. And then you become unemployed and then you live on the street. But uh, unfortunately, uh, well, if I can say fortunately, I think um, scientists are also opening up that conversation where they are saying that AI is not something that we as humans should be afraid of. Mm -hmm. It's something that we should rather be embracing because um, with the with AI or with robots taking over, you know, my uh, minuscule jobs and tasks such as making a coffee or answering a telephone, it leaves us humans to do, you know, better things. Like if you had a robot at your house to yeah. to cook, then you'd spend that time with your child or help them do their homework or something like that. Or be lazy as a teenager. But I feel like the only question that we can ask now is how far are we willing to take it? Mm-hmm. Artificial intelligence is a great idea, but how far really are we willing to take it? Oh, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us in the studio tonight. We appreciate. Thank you for having me. So next up, we're going to be looking at preparing and planning for natural disasters. And that is after the break. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back. You're still with the Science Inside. Now we are going into a conversation about preparing in advance through planning and engaging right down to managing a natural disaster. The Witt School of Governance and um, uh, uh, teamed up with the Houting Provincial Disaster Management Center to explore disaster risk reduction. This was the second provincial lecture series to further understand the complex interconnect 
connectedness between risk and resilience as well as examine opportunities to risk risk reduction through climate change adaptation and last week friday the african center uh, on philanthropy and social investment ha- held a dialogue on mitigating risk and planning uh, in the event of a natural disaster and should a natural disaster we should be well prepared for that disaster now eva chipa has more on this story the second half of the discussion on disaster management dialogue moderated by Bongani Bengwa looked at acknowledging and responding to climate change and natural disasters within the African continent. One of the key themes expressed was how to build resilience to natural disaster. Gertrude Chimange from the Catholic Commission of Justice shares her ideas on vulnerable communities and what the vulnerability means to those affected by natural disaster. When you look at the region itself and how we support each other as peers in a context of vulnerability and in a context of where we have natural disasters. I'm thinking, for example, if um, we're looking at a country where um, there's a context of ferocity, there's a context of uncertainty, there's a context of complexity in terms of economic, social, political processes, there's a context of chaos and um, a context of ambiguity. And in that context, you have vulnerable communities. How do you build resilience of rural community people, resilience of people that have been affected in such a context? How do we remain supportive of each other within the region in such uncertainties and complexities in social political processes in the context of human dignity? Because I'm also thinking that when we look at these people that have been affected, sometimes implementation of, of, of our activities is taking people as if they are objects. And, and, and so we, be, we come with already designed programs. We, become, we, we, we come into communities with, with an eye of this is what we need to do without having the people in terms of consultation and what really impacts the them. Audience members took centre fold in providing ideas of what being ready for disaster means and the frameworks that should be in place due to the fact that disaster strikes at a community level. Mamad Krasa raised an interesting issue. I want to say, as Africans, we need to put our house in order. Our houses are not in order. Disasters, we know they are going to come. We are not preparing for them financially. Because of limited time, I want to start by where I was going to end. Where I was going to end, where I was going to end was, we want to have a disaster risk reduction or disaster management framework, a readiness. So we need a readiness framework for disaster risk reduction. Now that framework is simple. So at the top, we have to ask a question, are we ready? So this is your internal question. As I'm going to go through, you ask yourself, your government, your organization, are we ready? So the first question is like, are we ready in terms of high level political buy-in and championing? We have put one champion here. We need more champions to, to drive this idea of how do we respond to disasters? So we've got a champion risk in the elders, but we need champions in the business sector. We need champions in the Air Force. We need champions in the grassroots organizations. We need champions at the traditional leadership level. 
there is actually a tug of war between the politicians and the traditional leadership. And when disaster strikes, it does not strike at a national level. It strikes at a community level. And they're saying that we need to revive our traditional leadership. Because that's actually, these are the people that are on a daily basis interacting with victims of disasters. So that is one issue that I'm saying, we need that kind of, of, of commitment. Second, do we have the finance to finance this, the disasters? We can have everything correct. Political buy-in, policies in place, but if we don't have the money, we're not going to manage it. So I say we still constantly need to ask ourselves, are we ready financially to manage these disasters? I want to end here by saying, the role of the military in the region, okay, defense forces. Now, talk about defense forces, we need to recalculate their curriculum. The new wars of this century are not going to be about Hitler. They are now the wars on disasters. And I say the army, are you, are you ready as the army? Is your curriculum advocating for this new kind of challenges that we have? Staying at the community level, a panelist explained there's a need to be sensitive to situations within communities as we try to implement disaster policies within affected areas. I hope also in Copa and had some discussions with the traditional leader there who actually said, you know, in the 1950s, in the 1950s, in that area, we used to go up the mountains during the rain season, and so we never stayed the rains were coming. So somehow, somewhere, something has gone wrong because these are waterways shown as you are actually as you actually indicated. Now, when it comes to issues of resilience, community resilience, um, and psychosocial support, it, as organisations and people who are interested in supporting vulnerable communities. I think that we also need to think through in terms of our strategies. Let's do no harm and do some good to these people. I've listened to stories of, of, of men who still visualize how their hands lost a grip of a wife and their children. The voice is still sounding very loud. I still talk and listen to voices of mothers who the cloth at their back lost a grip and listen and visualize to the babies crying and virtually dying off. Now when you come with interventions and strategies and you say this is a six month project, this is a three month project, what are we saying to communities as Mama, as Mama actually indicated that we need to be sensitive to the needs of communities and see how the, it actually builds on in terms of their resilience and how to cope with the disasters um, and the pains that they've gone through. Now, the message that I would actually leave, especially for Zimbabwe, is we need to look at our disaster management policy. We need to demilitarize it. Let's decentralize it. And let's depoliticize the strategy. Andrea Wojnaihera from the United Nations Population Fund explained that the vulnerability of women... Wajna Harris states that women and children should be the driving force in policies regarding disaster challenges because they are the first victim when disaster hits, which creates more vulnerability for their safety and health. The, the second issue is the vulnerability of women. Uh, we know that women across the board experience greater poverty, greater vulnerability, less decision-making capacity, uh, fewer opportunities for education, fewer opportunities for economic empowerment. I thought it was interesting there was a call to go back to traditional leadership. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> it's all good to have accountability to 
experience in meditating and But some things need to modernize. Some things need to, to move with the times. And that includes involving women in that, in that leadership. Um, in terms of statistics, we know uh, across the board that women tend to fare much worse and lose their lives more often than men in, in disasters, in humanitarian situations. And that's linked very much to this vulnerability. We saw in the film the woman who said, we were here waiting in our homes. Well, because the women stayed there to guard the homes. And they, they were just right in the line of the, the, the cyclones and the floods. So they became the first, the first victims and the first targets, if you will. But they're also incredibly vulnerable once you move them. As you saw in the centers, uh, they're without their communities. They may not even have their traditional leaders because they may have fled in all kinds of directions. Uh, they may not have their spouses. They may not have the, the extended family around them. So they become very vulnerable to their physical safety um, as well as economically. Um, it may be very difficult for a pregnant woman to sit in a food distribution line for nine hours or an elderly woman, for example. But who stands up for them? particularly if they're female-headed households, particularly if they're, they're unaccompanied. So um, those are some of the vulnerabilities. We know last year, in 2018, we had a quarter of the people in the world who were affected by humanitarian catastrophes. One quarter of those are women of childbearing age, women and girls, from 15 to 29. So that's also uh, the topic that my organization deals with. Um, extremely vulnerable, and you say, okay, well, everybody's vulnerable. She just happens to be pregnant at the moment. Well, yeah, guess what? That's the next generation. That's the next generation. So if she has a bad pregnancy, or she's not able to nourish that pregnancy, <coughs> what are we producing? What, what kind of human capital are we need for the next generation? And so that's why it is so important. Kennedy Mubaiwa from the Higher Life Foundation, which is based in Zimbabwe, explains how they responded to Cyclone Idai and how they aided the citizens and decided to spearhead the response team to the disaster. With the idea being to save lives first, Mubaiwa explains that as much as the conversation can be around science when dealing with climate change, but we need to acknowledge the experience of the people who are going through it. We are pragmatic. You know, we know that... Uh, there are so many frameworks, people that want to, you know, put science behind what's happening. But it's when you, it's, it's when you are in the core face of somebody who's who's holding onto their dilapidated, broken down house, and the wife has been swept away, the kids have been swept away. You look at this man; he's looking at you. He can't even say a word to you because you can't even figure out what's going through his head. And how can I bring science to a man like that? You know, all I can bring is what can I do? So right now, as we speak, most of the people that responded, uh, I think one of the colleagues mentioned it, they came with a three-month plan. I mean, people talk about per diems. I oh, know, you know, our budget is finished. We don't know per diems anymore. I don't talk per diems with my, with my team members. We're in there for the long haul. If you go to Shimani Money today, you're going to find my Hala Foundation team members on the ground. We're in there until that community has recovered. We've set up a fund for $100 million called Reboot. We're, we'll work with the government. We're going to redesign how to live in a village. Mm -hmm. So we work with the community to, to make sure that you know we bring something that is sustainable. So that is what you know we, we, we need. I mean, I, uh, some of the PhD students uh, they gave their presentations. You know, the truth of the matter for Zimbabwe, when we looked for funding, I was part of the team that was looking for funding. We were told that you guys are under sanctions, 
So we knew that international money was not for us. We had to work with local money. And we had to come up with local solutions. And from a business standpoint, the funders, the, the patrons for, for, for the business that fund us, uh, you know, the Masiwas who own Econet uh, and Kassava, all they said was that, let's put our infrastructure into action and let the infrastructure help people. So businesses have got to just respond and come up with solutions that are specific to these challenges because the next cycle is just an announcement away. Brian Bogart explained how we need to address climate change and the long-term trends in southern parts of Africa, especially within the agricultural sector and what crops will survive the change. So adapting is what should be the driving force at grassroots levels. The other issue relates to um, perhaps the long term. And while it's very important for us to focus on events like Udai because of the tragedy uh, that occurred because of the, the, the scale of the disaster, I think we tend to focus on events because we can understand them. I think the role of the artist in this is, is critically important. Um, we understand events like Idai because they're tangible. One day this place looked like this. The next day it looked completely destroyed. We understand that. But right now, um, last, last week, Sadek released figures for uh, food insecurity in Southern Africa for uh, the coming year. And we have more food insecure people in Sadek than we did during El Nino. So this very panel in 2016-2017 could be gathered to discuss drought and the impact of drought. Right? Now we're talking about cycles. If we keep focusing on events without seeing the continuum of climate change and the impact that it will have on the populations of this region, I think we maybe are missing, missing the big picture. Uh, uh, maybe just practically speaking on that point, if we look at the long-term climatic trends in Southern Africa, it's very obvious that maize, which I think we'll probably have uh, at lunch as soon as everyone is, is done with this panel, I'm sure all very hungry, maize is not the future. I think we have to go back to the future. I think that links very well with some of the points made by Hassan and, and other colleagues who've referenced indigenous knowledge systems. Maize wasn't the primary staple of the diet in this region until really the 20th century. It's an American crop. It came from the Americas. It was brought here and it was promoted. Now, again, what is the role of the artist for me uh, in trying to get us to think about what, were the, what are the solutions, what crops will survive climate change? We already have droughts. We've only had one year of favorable rainfall conditions since 2012 in Southern Africa. One year. So drought is no longer an emergency. Drought is the new normal. Cyclones may seem an aberration, but they will also become the new normal. How are we going to adapt our diets, the way that we produce food, the way that we consume it, to be more resilient to the impact of climate change, to adapt to the monumentality of the challenge before us? For Science Inside, I'm Eva Chipa. This is the Science Inside.
Good evening and welcome back to the Science Inside. And now we have come to that time of the show for on science where we look at the strangest side of research and we take where we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time and their money on. And tonight's on in tonight's on science we find out how grasshoppers are the choice insects for protein and antioxidant properties and as and that is as far as con, um, scientists are concerned so next up we have unscience and it was produced by myself unusual unlikely unscience good evening eva hey, all right i'm going to be giving you tonight's unscience right yeah so, what if I told you that eating a grasshopper or a silkworm is tantamount to drinking freshly squeezed juice with all the rich and nice oxidants necessary for your body? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope, not buying it. That can't be. No. <laughs> well, in a first of its kind, a new study measured antioxidant levels in a commercially available and edible insects and surprisingly among their findings it emerged that crickets pack around 70 percent of antioxidant power contained in orange juice and silkworm which mind you has twice the fat as olive oil for the first time in this study has measured antioxidant levels in commercially available edible insects yeah, I know of instances where I've heard of people eating insects for their protein potent properties, but I really doubt the antioxidant value. Yeah, I guess you're right. Africans are known for their unique cuisine and, you know, insects being the animals of choice. Uh, the case in point being the Mopani worm, eating which has rich iron levels, protein and other vitamins. But the grasshopper crunching is not a foreign practice to South African pellets either. Yeah, a common practice, but not when I'll indulge in. Well, maybe not for you and maybe not for anyone anytime soon. But it is something very likely to take place in the future. With food insecurity on the rise and efforts to relieving our carbon footprint, we might as well start right now in an attempt to saving our dear Mother Earth. According to the lead author of the study published in Frontiers in Nutrition, Professor Muaro Serafini at least says at least a quarter of the world's population, which is about 2 billion people, are reportedly regular insect eaters. Can you believe that? Mm-mm. That can't be right. <laughs> that can't be right. <laughs> so you're still not entirely oh, convinced. But it is clear that Muaro did the study with people like you in mind then. He says that people might be given that theory of health as an incentive to help the consumers make environmentally friendlier choices. But how would this save the planet to make us eco-friendly choices by eating insects? Wouldn't it be doing the opposite by cutting some of the animals' foods, like, you know, the whole hierarchy? Yes, it's true. But how many calves does a mature and healthy cow produce in a year. Have you thought about that? Okay. And how much of grazing and water consumption goes into livestock farming? Think about it. And how much of that water and that energy we could save on and the greenhouse gas emissions that would be reduced if we consume naturally found and self-regulatory edible insects. Mm-mm. I get you, but like bugs, orange juice, like bugs... <laughs> Orange juice, no, I, no, it just, 
My tummy is getting upset just thinking about it. Like, nah. I knew you would react in this fashion. True, but listen, antioxidant activity is a free radical foraging quality that physically or typically makes a food a superfood. Okay, for interest's sake, not that I'm going to eat this or drink this or whatever they do. How did they come to this conclusion? I thought you'd never ask that question. While using various measures of antioxidant activity, the researchers removed all the inedible parts such as the wings and the stings and such things. And then the insects were ground into fine powder and two parts extracted for each species were the fat and uh, whatever would be dissolved was dissolved in water. And each extract was taken and tested for its antioxidant content and activity. The same measure were used to test the antioxidant capacity of fresh orange juice and olive oil. These foods were selected as they were functional foods known to exert antioxidant effects in humans, says Muaro. It turns out that water-soluble extracts of grasshoppers, silkworms and crickets displayed the highest values of antioxidant capacity, five-fold higher than, than fresh orange juice. Is it safe to say that I'd rather like plant a whole orange tree and just stick to oranges? Well, I'm not sure why you're so squirmish about this topic because we've actually had an unscience where we spoke about cockroaches and I'm not sure how you would have reacted to that. because <laughs> Yeah, because uh, these researchers in a Chinese lab somewhere, they were actually growing an entire cockroach farm where they were just basically milking out the milking yeah like milking out the cockroach juices if i can say to make yeah to make it a tonic and people believe that the tonic worked a tonic yeah for stomach cramps so like if you were feeling squeamish like this now i would give you the tonic and you wouldn't know that it's cockroach juice and yeah now that you put it that way i'm not accepting anything Well, it seems that in the future they might also adapt dietary regimens for insect rearing in order to increase their antioxidant content for animal or human consumption. That's creepy, but cool. Yes, unusual, unlikely, unscience. Welcome back to the Science Inside. And if you have just joined us, we are in the second half of the show. And now we are going into a story that's going to uh, speak a little bit more about climate change and uh, natural disasters that come with uh, the event of climate change becoming an even more eminent um, feature in our society and in our climate. So today's story, we are going to be hearing a conversation around indigenous knowledge and community involvement and contributions from grassroots innovators and how they can help us find solutions in fighting the scourge of climate change. And the next story goes into that and more. It's extremely important for people to be self-aware, to know, first of all, that climate problems are real and they're here and they're not going away. I wouldn't be surprised if there are many people in the regions where Cyclone Idai hit and Kenneth and other disasters. 
I wouldn't be surprised if there are many people who still don't believe that this was a natural climate change driven drug disaster. And they still they think it was some kind of curse from God, some kind of you know event that it's not gonna happen again, not in my lifetime. When did I happen? I asked, when did we start getting cyclones in Africa? A friend of mine who is better educated than me said, you know, these are things that happen every 30 years. Just go on the internet. I checked, I didn't see much. I forgot about it until I was invited to this seminar. <laughs> and then somebody spoke here that actually these cyclones occur on the oceans, but they always go back before they hit land, right? But this time they did it. It must have something to do with climate change, I think. And who knows how many of them are going to come next year and where they're going to hit in the coming years. So we have to acknowledge, we have to believe that these problems are here with us now. And then we have to act accordingly. Some of the disasters are man-made. And to the extent that our behavior our changing behavior can reduce the impact of these disasters. We need to do the utmost best we can. I'm Professor Namo from UNESA. And I think for academics, uh, we are busy now documenting comprehensively through using the SDGs framework, Cyclone Ilan, Kenneth, Flooding Cape and Eastern Cape, and other disasters, but mainly floods and cyclones. Disasters, you know, they're going to come. We are not preparing for them financially. We want to have a disaster risk reduction, so we need a readiness framework for disaster risk reduction. Now, that framework is simple. So the first question is, like, are we ready in terms of high-level political buy-in and championing? We need more champions to drive this idea of how do we respond to disasters. So we've been a champion risk in the elders, but we need champions in the business sector. So if you don't have champions in the business sector, we are going to run into serious aspect. We need champions in the Air Force. We need champions in the grassroots organizations. We need champions at the traditional leadership level. There is actually a tug of all between the politicians and the traditional leadership. And when a disaster strikes, it does not strike at a national level. It strikes at a community level. And they're saying that we need to revive our traditional leadership. Because that's actually, these are the people that are on a daily basis interacting with victims of disasters. So that is one issue that I'm saying. We need that kind of commitment. UN affiliate, Planner for Climate Change, CEO of Alkiti Project. Colleen, you mentioned something very important. The question was addressed to you that, what is it that is needed in terms of reactionary planning? And you said there's a lot of work that has been done, which I'm pretty agree, because I'm part of the forums and some of the platforms that are happening in terms of climate change. However, you said something very important, that you need to, we need to rethink our fundamental approach in terms of taking science to the people. And there are very serious problematic action to that statement to say, why is it the need that science has to be a budgetary measure for things to happen? Why not use mechanisms that are already in our societal structures, which is what has been mentioned, that we need uh, grassroots innovation in terms of response to this disaster. I like the word, the fact that we are talking about a disaster. And when we think of disaster, government, in terms of national, global, 
authoritative response. It's going to have to take some time in planning. And this is like reactionary, uh, robust response that is needed on the ground. In Africa today, we have indigenous information that sits with societal structures and authoritative leaders who talk a common basic language to these people that are affected by these disasters. Why not then have a turnaround strategy to say, well, let's just not take silence to the people? Um, with the Southern Africa Trust. We're quite interested in ways in which we build community resilience to climate change and ways in which you build the, the systems at that local level. I have a specific question really around the climate finance architecture and whether or not there is a process in place where we can look at how we follow the money and trace the extent to which the billions of US dollars that have been raised for climate uh, change adaptation actually gets to the local level where adaptation needs to take place. The second question I have is really around building the bridge between science and indigenous knowledge systems and local level action. And to ask really around the simple interventions and the power of community radios and whether or not we have actually explored those enough to make sure that the information gets to the local level. A little story that I remember from 2015, floods that hit Mozambique. And the communities in the lower Shira said we were told the floods were coming, but nobody told us the extent of the floods. So those nuances in information getting to the local level is really important. I want to add to the question which was asked there whether science and indigenous knowledge can work together. First of all, I would like to point out that the test of any epistemic system is how it can improve the quality of life. Indigenous knowledge has proved over centuries supported the life of people. A large proportion of people in Africa and other developing countries still depend on indigenous knowledge and traditional medicine from security. And another important aspect is the fact that this question of the market, I think we need a paradigm shift. Indigenous knowledge is also a science of its own kind, but it's based on other cultural and ecological specific systems. So based on observation, we've seen that people develop their own early warning systems based on observation and understanding of the behavior of animals, insects, whatever. So it's a science of its own. Another important aspect is we believe now in the complementary knowledge systems, the democracy knowledge systems. So it can be based on a problem. The problem is disaster management. How can systems, so we call them indigenous, or we call them Western science, whatever, how can they work together to mitigate the problem of disaster management in specific ecological systems, cultural based, and taking into consideration of the specificity of where the problem will be floods, droughts, whatever, natural or environmental. Second, are our regulatory frameworks in place? Now I'm giving you the disaster risk reduction readiness pillars. Are our regulatory frameworks in place? We can have high level political buy-in, but if our regulatory frameworks are not in place, we are going to miss the point. The SADC center, do we have a regional framework that can cascade to the national level? If we don't have, do we have a, 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 a prototype that we can bring up at the SADC level? We need that. Readiness pillar number three. Do we have the finance to finance the disasters? We can have everything correct. Political buy-in, policies in place. But if we don't have the money, we're not going to manage it. So I say we still constantly need to ask ourselves, are we ready financially to manage these disasters? Pillar number four. 
Do we have the capacity? We're talking about institutional capacity. We're talking about individual capacities. So we need to ask ourselves, as a continent and as individuals, are we ready in terms of capacity of institutions and individuals? Now we'll come to the academics, research, innovation, development, monitoring, reporting, and verification. Are we ready in terms of that? If we are not ready, we are not going to make it. So I'm trying to paint a picture of saying we need a systems approach to disasters. My name is uh, Abu Bakr. I'm a PhD student with the Center for Climate Change. We shouldn't just look at the indigenous knowledge or African knowledge or knowledge system cannot just go hand in hand with science. That is what we should be looking at. That this, if we have a hybrid system of it, we can solve problems that may be natural or non-natural problems. Going forward, I want to talk to JP who has the role of businesses in in trying to help disaster management. That's before the disaster occurred. Now, in, in most of this presentation that we saw, we saw that farmers across Africa, across the countries that was mentioned, that this crisis hit them badly. Now, you may mention of that it's not very easy for you to ensure mitigation, but I know that in some places we have what is called yield insurance. For small farm holders, it means that if there is any natural disaster or any, any yield failure at the end of the year, based on the contribution of the small farm holders, they go back to the insurance companies and get, get some stipend which makes them to decide the next season. That will go a long way to, to solve this problem after the disaster. The farmers will be able to have life for themselves. It's left for the businesses to look for solutions, how to bridge the gap between like 5% of people who are not insured or who depends on farming that to get into the mainstream business. The insurance companies cannot just sit in the offices thinking that the informal sector will just rely on follow for them. You guys have to go to the small farmers to meet them so that you get them insured better for their crops and things like that. Yield-based insurance is an answer that's uh, available here in South Africa, actually, which has recently launched revenue-based, which is important protection. The problem with that is it costs money to make it for the people that doesn't have access to it. You need to arrange a form of subsidy funding. You need government support for that, and that is of the problem even in South Africa. It is the problem um, in Sally. But once again, there are solutions. I have the privilege to live and work in India for a long while. In India, there is ways that the, the small-scale community farmers have access to it, but it is national and local government subsidies that make it work. But there are solutions that is going to this bit. It is to do with the urgency and the priority. Uh, we can learn there's enough knowledge out there. We just need to customize for our communities. But it, it requires some urgency because these events is going to be more frequent in our market. And um, we need to get ready for it. Um, well, from that conversation, we have just heard how climate change actually affects many industries and how it also affects communities as well. And climate change has notably begun an effect on weather patterns and changes in precipitation and quantity through the floods and the droughts has um also brings about the issue of food and water insecurity, which inadvertently uh, also affects 
farming. And for example, changes in temperature and rainfall have in turn changed the behavior of vectors such as mosquitoes, flies and snails with other factors complicating uh, the spread of disease. Uh, And this means that the setting creates the conditions for deliberating and and potentially fatal diseases such as malaria, Zika and dengue. And for example, mosquitoes have moved to new areas, introducing infection to pre Previously unaffected people and certain animals. And from just saying all of the above, we can already see how climate change should be addressed as a matter of urgency and it should not only be spread amongst ourselves, but it was also noted at the conference that media has to play an even more active role in spreading this word out because people were saying that at the conference that, I mean, you find a disaster happening right next door to South Africa where we should be aiding them, but then you find a CNN or a BBC, somebody from the UK flying in to capture that story, whereas journalists around here are dragging their feet in um in reporting such stories and our reporting of these stories is important because if we are able to give information or if we are able to give the right information to the right people at the right time, we can actually save lives and help these people to prepare well in advance for uh, natural disasters should they strike. But there was it on um, on a climate change and preparing for natural disasters for the show tonight. We would like to also thank the African Centre on Philanthropy and Social Investment for extending an invitation to the Science Insight to cover this event. And I hope that all of you have learned a thing or two about climate change and that it it takes a concerted effort and it takes really a community to bring about change. Our team behind the scenes for this week's uh, show is production by Eva Chiba and tech is by Gudwano Serane. You can find this week's show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash forward slash science the science inside is produced by the vids radio academy funded in part by the south african department of science and technology that is all for tonight good night the science inside podcast